1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. So, yes, the own words movement is crucial, and we absolutely need as many books as possible from people who are writing from a perspective that I don't know firsthand. That's why I'm a journalist, just because I write about things that I don't know firsthand. (laughs) However, we also need people to, you know, to be able to write about whatever they want as well, no matter where they come from, what they look like. People need to have time and support to do that. And so... It just feels like like the whole system here when it comes to who gets to write what about whom is broken and that we're not asking the right questions to fix it.
0: I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Lauren Sandler is an award-winning journalist who writes about All kinds of things. She's reported from Iraq. She's written about young evangelicals, about equal pay, about feminism. She's the author of Righteous, a book about the intersection of religious fundamentalism and youth culture, and the book One and Only, which is an investigative and personal dive into the lived experience of and social importance of only children. Most recently, she's the author of This Is All I Got, which is the account of one year in the life of a young homeless single mother in New York City. The book tracks the woman's first year of motherhood, and in so doing, paints a portrait of the nightmarish challenges and inequalities of being a person in America struggling for housing security. It's also a book that grapples with the ethics of being a journalist, writing about and in close proximity to a person suffering material hardship, and a person with less power and privilege than the journalist herself. It also wrestles with the question of whether Lauren, in her reporting, got too close to her subject. Lauren came on the podcast to talk about her Catholic taste in subjects, her curiosity and desire to write books that are far outside her own life experience, and the ethics of journalism as she practices it.
1: There's a strange alchemy behind obsessions, right? What what leads us to our stories? Like, what are the thresholds that I want to cross? Um, why is it why is a conservative evangelicalism one year, and then it becomes something about, you know, about Islamic Sharia, and then it's poverty, or it's, you know, it's interesting, too, because the book that I'm thinking about now is bringing me back into the Christian world again. Um, And I never return to topics, or if I do, I feel cranky about it. Um, Again, not not a great way to build a career, but it's where my brain takes me. Um, But I think that the reason that I'm really interested in returning this time, if this is indeed something that I end up doing is because it's a way of looking at um, life in the Trump era in a different way. Mine was a Bush era conservatism that I was writing about, which at the time was the worst thing I could imagine. (laughs) which on the one hand feels incredibly naive now. And on the other hand feels like, yes, it was the worst thing we could imagine. We shouldn't have had to imagine this. It should never be something that we approve of in hindsight. Um, But yeah, I think that my, my writing tends to be motivated by outrage um, and by deep discomfort. Mm -hmm. So it's, I tend to only find the motivation to do this work and luckily there's you know a wellspring of this motivation for myself and the world when I want to shake someone and say don't you see don't you understand Mm -hmm. um and it's always about something that is outside myself I think that maybe if I wasn't such part of such an overrepresented group I might say that about myself um You know, if I was Charlotte Bronte, I would probably write a book more like Jane Eyre that's filled with rage about, um, about a story that I know well, but I feel like that is never, I actually, I don't know that. I'm going to strike that. I only know doing it this way. I think there's something about it, which it occurs to me now is a little bit like falling in love, where you're not quite sure why that is the person that you are feeling so attracted to and feel so seen by and can't stop thinking about. There just is some alchemy there. There's some chemistry. And I feel like, you know, while I might be quite cerebral about what these ideas are once they hit me um, and what the process is once I'm in it, that thunderbolt is the thing that remains magical to me.
0: Mm Hmm. Yes. That makes so much sense. How have you, over time, wrestled with the varying power dynamics of writing across some threshold of experience? Because it seems like in some, in like the Bush era of Christian conservatism, you were writing about people who had a lot of, say, political power or a lot of cultural capital. Um, In your most recent book, you're writing about a group of people in New York and a young woman in particular who are struggling to just make it through the day. And your position as like the person who's arbitrating that story on the page and the power you hold in that dynamic has changed really radically. How has your thinking about that evolved over time? And like, how do you think about it now?
1: Oh, I mean, this is like the subject of much insomnia for me. <laughs> um, I think I, there's a certain type of anxiety um, that comes with writing about people in power. In other words, that if they don't like what you write, you might suffer for it in some way. Right. Um, and yet, you know, I I'm I'm always a proponent of this the Orwellian notion, and I don't mean Orwellian in a 1984 sense. I mean George Orwell said this <laughs> um, that that you know, it's public relations. If it's if it's you know anything that isn't going to piss off who you're writing about, and so I've always sort of steeled myself <laughs> for pushback. Um, and of course, you know, if you write about a lot of the topics that I do, which tend to be about you know abortion politics or race or um, I don't know, just the business of being a female-bodied person in the world, um, it can be. It can be a a target and always has been. Um, Certainly writing about religion has been. But that's a different conundrum than what it means to write about someone who doesn't have power.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, for example, in this book that um, that came out last April, just came out in paperback, which is called This Is All I Got, um, which is about a young homeless woman named Camilla or rather I named her Camilla. That's not her real name. Um, I was aware all the time that if Camilla felt slandered, if Camilla felt like I had gotten it wrong, if Camilla felt invaded, she would not have the, you know, a a powerful block of recourse. She would not have the ammunition to train on me that people with attorneys do in the same way, which doesn't mean that she doesn't have access to attorneys. I mean, she's someone who is a criminal justice student who avails herself of extensive pro bono help. And, um, Frankly, is fine on her own. She sued her own parents for child support when she was a teenager. She's fearsome in a court of law. Um, but it was really important to me beyond that that I got it all right in a way that I always carry that. But it's a different type of fear. It's not, oh, I have to get this right because when they don't like it, I have to prove that I got it right or, I'm going to be in serious trouble versus I have to get this right in because I have to honor her trust in what it means to, um, in what it means to participate in something that is outside of how we tend to manage public discussion. Um, and, and this is something I don't think I want to talk about too much because I need to, um, I need to honor her trust. She does not want to be talked about past where the book ends Mm -hmm. and probably not past before the epilogue, (laughs) but that's already happened. Um, She wasn't thrilled with certain aspects of this book. And um, and that feels heartbreaking to me and yet I needed to write an honest story about her. So it's always, I think, I find it a very difficult thing to navigate. Um, It's impossible to be written about. People have written about me, and even if they've been, you know, puff pieces about a book, I still feel completely unseen and misinterpreted. Um, So... I can imagine what it's like to have an entire book written about you in a state of extreme vulnerability during one of the worst years of your life, um, having given someone the privilege of total access to what you are enduring. And it, you know, it is a great privilege that of course comes with great responsibility and which no one is going to get right. And I think that that's something that I've struggled with is that, you know, there's no such thing as doing it right. There there, there are a lot of ways to mitigate how wrong it can be. Um, but I don't think that anyone would ever write a word ever if it had to be, you know, in some 360 degrees sense Perceived to be perfect, accurate um, by every single person who would ever interact with it, including the people who are in it. Um, And that is part of what is so scary about publishing to me. And yet, after all these years, I feel like there's an element of I I have actually done my best and I'm putting it into
0: the world. Well, what was your what was your first conversation with her at the beginning when you were trying to make sure that she... When you were trying to warn her, <laughs> as often, like, I feel journalists have some obligation to do when they're starting to write about somebody who has no experience being written about. There is always that conversation you have of, like, this is what this will mean. This is how this will go. These are the guidelines. These are the boundaries. That, that conversation. How did you talk to her about that? I think that part of what's complicated about it is it was an evolving process. So,
1: you know, I show up at a shelter. I'm there every week for a few weeks before I even take out my notebook. There are a number of women who are interested in participating. Some of them continue to be interested. Some of them drop out. Um, Some of them ask at a certain point if I don't write about aspects of things. One of them said that she wanted to write her own book um, and therefore didn't want me to write too much about her, and I endeavored to help her with that. You know, it was, that can be, I think, what is tricky about these processes is it's not, at least for me, a simple audition. And so it doesn't feel like there's something that is sort of a a neatly contractual process. Um, It's more, you know, I remember walking down Fourth Avenue and saying, okay, I know you're excited about this, but... We need to lay some ground rules here if it's me with you as a journalist and not just a friend. So, you know, I, I'm i not going to give you any money for this. We will hopefully sell your life rights at some point, and that will be money for you. And I will set up, you know, a donation fund for you when the book is published, and there will be money for you there. But part of watching your process about how you're managing poverty even beyond basic journalistic ethics, means I can't interrupt that poverty. Um, Which also means you can't come stay at my house, um, because I need to see what's going to happen, depending on how things happen. Um, And I also felt like I wanted to draw a line on social media. Um, You know, she's a big Instagrammer, as is every person in their early 20s who eats a meal um, or tries on a pair of sunglasses. And so I felt like it was important that there was a division there. Um, Those were the ground rules. And they weren't ground rules that she ever questioned. I think that that made perfect sense. There were moments when I pushed up against those ground rules as much as possible. So for example, I, you know, when she had asked her father for a snowsuit for her baby for Christmas, and I knew he was never going to give Alonzo a snowsuit. um, And Alonzo was very cold and Camilla didn't have money. I bought Alonzo a snowsuit for Christmas. Um, So I allowed myself to buy her gifts and I paid for meals when we were together. But beyond that, um, I really tried to keep that line. And she didn't end up on the street. I don't know what I would have done if that was something that was a real possibility. Um, I think that there was only so far I would be willing to go to watch someone who I, you know, come to care about and know very intimately suffer even if that suffering is part of the story that I'm there to tell. But the amount that she suffered on a daily basis, obviously, that was the purpose of the story. That's why I was there. So day after day, I was not mitigating her suffering. Um, That said, you know, I couldn't afford to rent an apartment for her. You know, a night on my couch wasn't going to make a difference. And she never needed that. She was always so aware, I think, that the issues that were facing her down were massively systemic. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a writer married to a photographer in Brooklyn. It's not like, you know, we're not bankers. It's, it's not like I could have solved anything um, in, a, in a meaningful way for her. And I had hoped that having this book in the world would eventually make some sort of difference. However, that's not why I wrote it. Um, I didn't write this book so that Camilla would get money in the end from this book. I wrote this book to to make people feel what it felt like to be Camilla, um, to let people enter through that magic of literature, what it means to live another person's life, especially a type of life that we tend to only see in terms of policy and data points, um, and not how it's actually lived and felt. So, um, but I did want her to be okay. I wanted all the women I met to be okay. I want all the women like them who I haven't met to be okay. Yeah. That was the point of
0: the book. Yeah. I mean, there's choosing to write this book in this time is like a complicated and in many ways a bold thing to do because there's so much discourse right now saying that only people from inside the experience particularly inside the marginalized experience should be can or should be trying to write about what it's like and how did you like walk through that and say no no I I'm going to write this book anyway, even though I'm not, I can't speak. I'm by definition going to be writing from outside the experience, looking at the experience. Um,
1: It's because of my privilege that I believe I have an obligation to write books like this. Um, You know, that I was able to, I'm a journalist because I could graduate college without student loans. Um, I'm a journalist because I'm, angry about the world we live in all the time. And I've been doing this work for a long time. So I have some skills. And I have some patience and some motivation. (laughs) And um, the women who I have met in the reporting of this book are not themselves people who wanted to tell their own stories. One of them was, um, but once she started doing it, she realized that it wasn't the right fit for her. Um, furthermore, these are women who spend their lives in welfare office waiting rooms and um, are nursing babies and are working at least one job, maybe in school at the same time, dealing you know, with very time consuming trauma, you name it. Um, the privilege of time in addition to, to access, um, that's not something that was really available for the people who I at least was spending time with. And, um, you know, when I'm not writing, I'm often working as a mentor or as an editor. It's, I believe that it's incumbent upon me to help other people get access and to help other people develop some skills and do what I can to amplify other voices. That said, um, this was something that I wanted to do. And to me, it isn't a question of whether we should not have people like me writing books like this. It's why we have so few people who aren't like me, not just writing books like this, but books, period. Um, You know, there's a real cap in publishing on how many stories of trauma, poverty, homelessness people think anyone's willing to read. So I, I met with a major publisher about this book who was very interested in the book. And she said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not sure because we already have random family and random family. Oh my god! It's a fantastic book. Adrienne LeBlanc is an amazing writer. It's a very, very important book to me. And part of the reason that I do work like this, but Adrian reported that book in the nineties and it was published in what, 2000, 2001, which is 20 years ago. So a lot of that reporting is 30 years old. Um, it, it, it was wrapped over 20 years ago. Um, we're talking about... A New York City, which is completely different, a political administration, which is completely different, a world in which Section 8 is available, in which you can still get public housing, in which, you know, welfare checks are, I think, what, three times what they are now – a world before social media. I mean, it's just the notion that we already have this story or that, you know, well, we have evicted. Well, evicted is a different story than the story that I'm telling. And it's a it's a survey book. And it's not about the experience of homelessness in the same way that I'm telling it. And why are we even having this conversation, right? Like, why don't we get to have as many books on these topics by as many people? people who want to write them, as long as they are writing them in a way that at least some people can deem ethical, rigorous, thoughtful, and moving. Um, The notion to me that I would only be able to write about my own experience is, is troubling. So yes, the own words movement is crucial. And we absolutely need as many books as possible from people who are writing from a perspective that I don't know firsthand. That's why I'm a journalist, just because I write about things that I don't know firsthand. (laughs) However, we also need people to, you know, to be able to write about whatever they want as well, no matter where they come from, what they look like. Um, and people need to have time and support to do that and so it just feels like like the whole system here when it comes to who gets to write what about whom is broken and that we're not asking the right questions to fix it.
0: Do you have like rules for yourself with regards to approach or even just how you go in as a reporter when you are, no matter if we're talking about a shelter in Brooklyn or the church in Seattle, um, like, do you have rules for yourself rules of engagement? This is my attitude. This is the way I want to be. This is how I, this is how I exist as an, as like an other in this space who wants to learn and to write. I do. I'm really glad that you asked that question. Um, my rules are that
1: I show up completely direct about who I am and completely open to sharing myself as much as someone else is sharing themselves. It's the opposite of how people teach you how to be a journalist. <laughs> I tend to interview very little. I mainly hang out. Um, if someone's talking about an ex-boyfriend, I'm going to talk about an ex-boyfriend. If someone's talking about a theological question, I'm going to talk about a theological question. Not to drown out other voices, but because we are two people in conversation. And I'm not doing it to get something. I'm doing it because here's a person sharing themselves with me. I'm going to share myself too. Um, and that way, I think people always know where I'm coming from. So I'm not a surprise. Um you know, I never put on Christian drag or, you know, like in in a mosque, I will cover myself because one must do that. But I, you know, I never pretend to believe anything. I don't, I never pretend to come from anywhere. I'm not, I just, you know, to use a very overused word, I show up authentically as myself. And that way people can decide for themselves whether they want to be with me because it's me who's going to be doing the writing. Um, And I think that my voice as a writer is very connected to who I am when I'm in a room with a person. And so there are fewer surprises there. And frankly, it's just more fun. Um, I remember reporting at a very large, important church in Colorado, and I was the second secular journalist to come in in about a month. And the one who was there before me was someone who pretended to be a believer. Whoa. And, um... Really? And this is someone who ended up doing very good work from a reader's perspective, writing very important, very well-published, well-regarded work. But I will never forget what it meant f- to to encounter the distrust that, you know, on on top of existing distrust that people had when they realized who it was they were really dealing with. And the relief that they felt to find out that, you know, <laughs> someone who was way more of just sort of a self-professed enemy in their midst, mm-hmm. <laughs> but who they could just see as a person. Um, that was a that was a threshold for me, was a moment when I realized that isn't who I am and that isn't how I can do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's a cost in one's career, in what one can get, et cetera, f- um, from always being honest in that way. But I will say... I also think that there is a depth and an intimacy in the work that that doesn't start with the writing, but starts upon meeting and starts um, to evolve at that moment and lasts through the whole process.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to ask you, because I struggle with sometimes um, deciding whether or not and when it is appropriate to speak up with disagreement about particular things. So for example, going to write about a religious community where their politics are really different than my politics and their beliefs are obviously not something I share. And they, I'll walk in, no, they know that I'm not a believer, been very transparent, but they will say, somebody I'm interviewing will profess an idea that I find like specious and offensive. And I'm thinking, do I push back on this right now? Do I argue with this this idea, this, you know, some value, some notion, some political ideology that I just think is like, hugely problematic? Or should I just like, let them like, I'm here as an observer, not as someone to change anyone's mind. Should I just let it pass? And if I just let it pass without voicing my disagreement, am I being dishonest to them in some way are they going to be caught off guard that I didn't agree with that I was quietly disagreeing with them how do you think about that kind of granularity of what honesty means in in interactions like that I guess what I'm talking about is like omission versus um direct lying or conversational failure to disclose yeah that's a great question I like to
1: think that one advantage of living in a culture that is so obsessed with the silos of political identity (laughs) is that um, it's enough of a blanket to cover some of that. So so if I'm reporting on an anti-abortion group and I show up, as a feminist writer who has written about abortion, I, I don't. I don't think I have to. You know, I'm not there to debate it. I'm there. I'm there to hear. I'm there to learn. Um, but I also feel like I'm there to answer questions that are asked of me. And I find that that's often what ends up happening: is people will ask me what I think, and if I'm asked, then I'll answer. So this is a sort of interesting question about investigative journalism: mm-hmm. is is at what point does it cross an ethical line? I wasn't there to, um, to slip in secret into Camilla's life or into the shelter, but I was there to slip in secret in, into a failed system, mm-hmm. into seeing how— Social services are so dysfunctional into seeing how impossible it is to get housing, et cetera. So, you know, I didn't march into the NYCHA office and say, here I am. I'm a journalist. Um, smile for the camera. That was all something in which in that situation I was a disingenuous, but I also was not openly lying. And I wasn't asking anyone any questions or asking anyone to share intimacy with me. So that was about observing a system versus getting deep inside another person's experience. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a real difference. Mm -hmm. But it is stunning what is close to us. I mean, you know, there is not a shelter in New York City that will allow a journalist in to report. My reporting was, I should say, there isn't a public shelter. There isn't a publicly funded tax dollar funded, you know, run by our administration shelter in New York City that will allow a journalist in. So my reporting was in a private shelter. Um, And in the same way, I, I couldn't just walk through the job center on 14th Street or Um, Or the NYCHA office on Atlantic Avenue without having a reason to be there, without being able to show that I had the right paperwork, that I had a number that, you know, Mm -hmm. without a case number, there's no access to any of this, really. And so this is part of the issue is that it all exists behind a curtain. Um, And we don't know how bad it is unless we slip in the way that I did or unless people like Camilla expose it on their own, Mm -hmm. which is great risk to them mm-hmm. and who has the time and access to do that anyway.
0: Right. Yeah. That was something that was so clear in her story, how much of her time this system took up, how impossible it was for her to carve away time. I mean, barely to carve away time to go to school, barely to, you know, to, to do anything except survive and continue trying to find I mean, the next place to live the time suck was dizzying to read
1: people often ask me so so what surprised you when you were reporting this book as are like oh i couldn't believe how bad it is <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> i mean obviously the reason that i wrote this book was because i thought that things were really bad but the thing that i really did not understand was this element um which is something that some people refer to as administrative burden, the design of all of this, that, you know, you could show up and spend five days waiting at the welfare office for a single bit of paperwork or a single check. Um, And those five days are then days of missed work or missed classes. What do you do if you have a baby? I mean, all of these different just life-exploding things that would make anyone who's not in the system after an hour completely... Furious, um, You know, or oh, sorry, your your case has been transferred from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Oh, sorry, it's been transferred to the Bronx. Each one of those is going to be, you know, hours on the subway and waiting day after day after day, and then oh, that paperwork is from last month. And so we need you to do the whole thing all over again, so that it's paperwork from this month, even though you had the right paperwork from last month, but you were in the waiting room too long, because they wouldn't see you. I mean, just this way of living. Um, you know, it, it is it is more Kafka-esque, I think than Kafka could have imagined. Um, and it's, It's dehumanizing and debilitating and makes progress impossible. And I think a huge part of why we are where we are right now, it is, you know, the lifeblood of systemic racism is not just disrespecting someone's experience, but making sure that this is the experience that they have. How
0: do you feel when you are in the process of like day to day crossing that threshold of going back and forth between your life and someone else's life. You you write about that in this book which was a choice that I thought was so elegant and and kind of important to put into the book your experience of being a woman who lives in New York and Camilla's experience of being a woman who lives in New York. What is that going back and forth like for you? Well, it's funny because the way I originally conceived of the book and the
1: way I wrote it first was to not have my experience in it at all. Mm -hmm. My feeling was um, I didn't want to be a tour guide. Um, I didn't want it to be a book where... One needs to understand poverty through the eyes of privilege to care about it. I was really worried about putting myself in at all. And in fact, the way I initially wrote it was essentially as a nonfiction novel with no narrator other than Camilla. So it was only experiences that I had witnessed and that she had told me written from her perspective, Mm -hmm. Um, not necessarily her intellectual perspective, but literally through her eyes. And um, an editor told me that that didn't work. <laughs> and I also sat with it and thought, okay, I need to own my relationship to this in a different way. I mean, no matter how you write this book, it's it's going to be philosophically suspect. And um, and no matter what choices I make, they're choices that would have maybe been better other choices and better other moments. Um and I found it really creatively difficult to to nail that down. Um, but of course, oh, and and then of course, um, an editor wanted it to be fully about my relationship with her and how I changed, what I learned oh, through wow. this process. And I said, "I'm, I'm, we will cancel the contract if that's what the book needs to be." Because that was the thing I I most refused to do. So it was this really difficult dance for me to. To put myself in there um, and, but to not have it be from a tour guide perspective.
0: Where are you, you were saying before that the next project you're working on is taking you back into the realm of religion. Um, Do you feel like you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on or even just like how the, how the next, that next door presented itself to you? Um, I don't want to talk about it
1: yet because I'm not positive how it's coming together. But I will say that um, for me, realizing what it means to write about vast oppressive systems through these very closely observed individual narratives, um, it really felt writing this last book, like, oh, that's the thing I'm supposed to be doing. That's where the meaning is for me. And um, after this book, I went through this whole process of, oh, I'm going to think about my next book and it's going to be really broad and really idea driven and really speak in a, you know, through a different megaphone to what's happening in our country right now. And it doesn't feel right to me. I mean, other people can write sort of more idea-driven, data-driven books like that. And I've written them in the past. Um, I don't devalue that. But realizing that trying to figure out how to make a work of nonfiction literature where someone can embody an experience and attention and therefore understand the impossibility of our world is very much where I feel led right now um, so thinking about what america has become ideologically um, i have come back to the idea of considering a family that's trying to confront that ideology internally in its own in its own civil war under one name under one roof in a sense to try to help us understand the brokenness of where we have arrived.
0: That sounds amazing. sounds like hard work. We'll see if I can do it. <laughs> I'm sure you can. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.